Our present uh, sermon series is excelling in our love uh, for one another. Uh, In this series, we are examining the one another verses that are found in the New Testament uh, that teach us how to love one another in the uh, family of God. And today, uh, and we've just been doing this in a very systematic fashion, just walking right through the uh, New Testament epistles, and today we come to the book of James, and in James there's uh, two one another verses that are very, very similar to one another. Uh, James 4.11 reads, brothers do not slander one another. And then in chapter 5, verse 9, we read, do not complain, brethren, against one another. So both of these verses deal with Uh, the importance in the family of God to not use the tongue as a weapon uh, to attack, uh, to hurt one another. Now, since uh, these uh, two verses are so very similar, uh, we're going to focus on James uh, 4.11 and uh, looking at that in the larger context of chapter 4. And it's very unfortunate that there is a break between chapters 3 and 4 since both chapters deal with the same subject, the destructive nature of the tongue. Uh, Most of you are familiar with chapter 3 of James, probably the greatest chapter in all the Bible on the tongue, on speech. Uh, And matter of fact, James comments about the tongue they actually come to a crescendo at the beginning of chapter 4 with the question that is found in verse 1, which you see at the beginning of your sermon notes. And notice that reads, But about the feuds and struggles that exist among you, where do you suppose they come from? Can't you see that they arise from conflicting passions within yourselves? Uh, Bottom line, when my desires conflict with your desires, the sparks fly. I want my way, you want your way, and our tongues then come out and become weapons to see who prevails, who wins. Now, today's message, if you look there very quickly at your sermon notes, consists of two parts. We're going to begin by looking at how to diffuse an argument before it explodes uh, from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And then we will transition at the end to James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 to look at when Christians are most like the devil. Now, it's very, very important how you receive this message this morning. Uh, You know, one of the struggles any pastor has when he develops a message is exactly what to include, not to include, uh, sort of how to present it. Well, uh, I hope I did the right thing. I'm giving you a lot of information in this message. There's a lot of information in those sermon notes, uh, so much so that it could overwhelm you. So you need to receive this message in the right way. Uh, View this almost like a professor giving you your homework assignment. And I'm just going to sort of basically go over the assignment with you. But then I pray the value of this will be to take these notes with you and then find some time this week, maybe work this into your devotions, or, but map some time out uh, where you can use this information first to examine your life. And uh, there are aspects of this message, and I'll point them out, where you can take spiritual inventory of where you are in terms of your relationship with Christ and others in light of the topic that we're looking at today. And then there are other aspects of this message that are very clearly sort of your homework assignment, uh, things you need to act on, things that you need uh, to do. So to be very, very honest with you, this message will have no value to anyone in this sanctuary if you really don't take this with you once we conclude and then uh, work through it as I just uh, mentioned. So I, I do hope you picked up a copy of the sermon notes. And just so you'll know, some of you may not be aware of this, 
But, you know, all the sermons can be seen on our church website, either video or audio. And also on the website, if you're not aware of this, you can always download a copy of the sermon notes that have all the blanks filled in. So uh, even if you're here and you have your notes but you missed a blank or two, you can always go to the church website and get that complete uh, information. You know, one of the uh, most common complaints that I hear in marriage counseling, I do a good bit of marriage counseling, have over the years, is, uh, you know, we, we love each other, but why do we argue so much? Uh, well, reality is, uh, and any of you that have been married for any length of time know this, uh, marriage sort of goes through uh, uh, three phases, and you typically go through these uh, rather quickly. Uh, stage one is... Happy honeymoon. Uh, stage two, the party's over. Uh, and then stage three, let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. And at stage three, now listen to me, at stage three, you better learn in marriage how to manage your arguments with one another. Because if you do not, those arguments, that conflict can literally explode in your face and destroy your home. And husbands and wives are not the only ones that argue. Uh, arguments arise between parents and their children. I mean, there are arguments between the best of friends. You find arguments in the workplace uh, with your neighbors. And yes, even in the church family. There are times, sadly, and we've all experienced this, when life is so filled with conflict, the only peace you know is what the writer described as that brief, glorious moment when everyone stands around reloading. <laughs> the irony is, here's the irony, uh, and, and again, our primary focus has been applying this to the church family, but of course it applies to our earthly families, our marriages, our families, and so many other relationships. But the irony is uh, we can't live without one another. But the closer we get, the greater the potential to hurt one another. Uh, we're like uh, porcupines in the cold winter who huddle together uh, to get warm, uh, but their quills prick each other, so they what? They they move apart. And before long, they're they're shivering again in the in the cold, and they huddle close again. But soon, they're jabbing one another again. So although we desperately need each other, we keep on needling each other. Uh, one of my uh, very favorite uh, Peanuts cartoon. Uh, in it, Lucy says to Snoopy, you know, there are times when you really bug me. Krista, you can relate to this related to me and you, right? There are times I really bug you, right? You think so. And, uh, and uh, how about Uncle Teddy over there? Uncle Teddy bugs you a lot, doesn't he? Oh, he's even worse. Okay, okay. So Uncle Teddy's worse than her daddy. Well, she said... Uh, she said, uh, uh, Lucy says, there, there are times when you really bug me, but I admit there are times when I feel like giving you a big hug. Uh, Snoopy replies, well, that's the way I am, huggable and buggable. <laughs> now, at the start of this message, at the beginning of this message, right now, I want you to think of the person in your life who is the most buggable. Think just a moment. Who's the most buggable person in your life? Who do you argue with the most? And it may be your marriage partner. It may be someone here in the church. It, it could be a number of people. Again, often that person that's the most buggable is also the most huggable in your, in your life. But who is that most buggable person? The person who needles you the most. Um, and so let's see if we can discover how to... Defuse the argument before it explodes. And by the way, uh, 
we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 from the Phillips version. I've, I've never actually used this in a Sunday morning service, but the Phillips version, uh, J.B. Phillips wrote a, uh, translated uh, the New Testament into uh, a version that uh, back in the early 60s. It's an excellent translation from the Greek text. It's in a little more contemporary language. It's always been one of my most favorite uh, versions, and so I, I, th- I thought we would use that uh, today. So look now at your notes, and we'll begin at the three desires that James says causes arguments. Uh, three desires that sort of are at the root of all of our arguments and conflicts. The first one, he says, is the desire to have. The desire to have, and you can just put there in that blank in the parenthesis, possessions. That's what we're talking about here. The desire to have possessions. Look at verse 2. James says, you crave for something and don't get it. You are jealous and envious of what others have got, and you don't possess it yourselves. Consequently, in your exasperated frustration, you struggle and fight with one another. So James says that's one of the desires that causes arguments, the desire just to have, to possess things. The second desire is the desire to feel. And the emphasis here, just put pleasure. Possessions first, then pleasure, the desire to feel. In verse 3, he said, you only want to satisfy your own desires. I mean, we, we, you know, how do we put it today? We, we want to feel good. You know, we want to be happy in life. So the desire to feel pleasure. And then the third desire that he mentions is the desire to be, to be something, to have significance. In other words, pride. So possessions, pleasure, pride. Proverbs 13.10 says, pride leads to arguments. Now, bottom line, here it is. This is not complicated. James is saying when someone comes between you and your desire to possess something which you see as attractive, appealing, or meaningful to you, or when someone comes between you and what you believe is going to make you feel good, It's going to bring satisfaction to your life. Or when someone comes between you and your desire to be important, to be popular, to get that promotion, whatever it might be, well, that's when we go to war with one another. See, I I want that possession. I want that feel-good experience. I want to be satisfied. I want to be happy. I want to feel significant. I want to feel important. And it's those desires that take us to war with one another. Now, this is where I'm talking about taking this message with you once we conclude and examining your life. And this would be the first point of examination. You need to get alone with God. And you need to ask Him, God, I'm alone with you. Nothing is hid from you. You know the depths of my heart. So deliver me right now from self-deception and deceit. Don't let me minimize. Don't let me excuse myself. Don't let me try to justify myself. Lord, will you show me which of these desires are really a controlling, motivating factor in my life that's behind many of the arguments that I have, many of the conflicts I have? Is it desire to have possessions? Is it desire to to feel good, to be happy, to be satisfied? Is it desire to be significant, to be important? And then you'll move on there from your ser- in your sermon notes. And notice he not only gives the three desires that cause his arguments, but he gives the three reasons our desires are not fulfilled. The three reasons our desires are not fulfilled. See, 
when our desires are not fulfilled, we blame others. We think they're the problem. And if we could just get them right, we'd have what we want. And James says, oh, no. The, the problem's not with them. The problem's with you. You need to look in a mirror. And he gives three reasons our desires are not fulfilled. And the first one, he says, is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. James chapter 4, verse 2 says, You don't get what you want because you don't ask God for it. Well, why do we not pray? Well, we're too busy arguing to try to get our own way. <laughs> we prefer to slug things out rather than surrender the situation to God. Look at the second reason he says we so often don't get what we desire. He says pure tea, and this is typically at the heart of it all, selfishness. Just selfishness. James chapter 4, verse 3. He says, and when you ask See, first, he said, first you don't, you don't have because you don't ask. But then he says, and when you do ask, he doesn't give it to you. Why? Because you ask in quite the wrong spirit. You only want to satisfy your own desires. Now listen, beloved. Too often, even in the family of God, we see prayer as nothing more than a tool to get what we want, to make all of our dreams come true, to manipulate the little world in which we live. Almost view God as a genie in a bottle that's going to give us our, our every wish, our every desire. But that's not what prayer was intended to be. God intended prayer to be a tool, yes, but a tool to discover His plan for your life. His provision to execute that plan. His power to be like Jesus Christ, to transform your character from the inside out and to advance the cause of Christ. That's the purpose of prayer, to plug you in to the person, plan, and power of God, to light you up to be a witness for Jesus in this world. For Christ to be formed in you, to be displayed through you. And only when God's glory becomes more important than your gratification will our prayers have any real effect, have any real power. So, he says, first reason you don't have what you desire is prayerlessness. Second reason is just selfishness. You're just absorbed in your own gratification. And then the third thing he mentions is worldliness. Worldliness. Look at, listen to James 4, verse 4. He says, you, and remember now, James is writing to believers. He's writing to those in the family of God, people just like you and me. And he says, you. are like unfaithful wives flirting with the glamour of this world and never realizing to be the world's lover means becoming the enemy of God. Anyone who deliberately chooses to love the world is thereby making himself God's enemy. Let me give you a great cross-reference that's not in your notes, but write this reference down. 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And this is what the Apostle John wrote. He says, do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. Sounds just like what we just talked about, possessions, pleasure, right, and pride. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. 
And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what God pleases will live forever. Listen, beloved. You don't have to go outside the church to find worldly people. Some of the most worldly people, sadly, are inside the church. People who tithe regularly, who participate in church ministries. But when you peel peel the onion back and you get to the core of their lives, what is at the heart of it at all is they want their way. They want their way. See, worldliness, don't think of worldliness just doing a bunch of external things. Worldliness, it it can lead to that, of course, but worldliness is nothing more than being self-centered. It's where, listen now, where pursuing what you want becomes more important than pursuing Christ. And this is why James equated worldliness with spiritual adultery. So, again, you need to take this message, these sermon notes, and you need to evaluate yourself in these areas. You need to look in the presence of God and let Him look at your God, point out where there's prayerlessness, point out where there's selfishness, Point out where there's worldliness, where I am guilty of spiritual adultery, of leaving my first love. I mean, can I honestly say right now in your presence, God, can I honestly say that you are my first love? That I have no greater passion in life than Jesus Christ? I have no greater pursuit in life than to be like Jesus Christ? Every believer, every follower of Christ ought to be able to say that with authenticity before God. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we don't fail. It just means that, yes, He is at the center of our lives. That we have fixed our eyes on the author, perfecter, and finisher of our faith. And, yes, we realize our devotion is mixed with a lot of ugliness. And we realize we have not arrived, but I have my eyes fixed on the goal, and I'm pressing forward. Not that I've arrived, not that I've obtained it yet, but I'm pressing on because I realize He is worthy of all that I am and all that I possess because of who He is and what He did for me. Amen? Amen. Now, Move now to four steps in diffusing an argument. Now, those first two points in the notes sort of areas you need to take and examine your life. Do a spiritual inventory. Here's your homework assignment. These are the things you want to now begin to actually put into practice. Not just learn it up here by rote, but when you get in these situations with that buggable person, you begin to try to apply this by God's grace and empowerment. And it only can be done by God's grace and by God's empowerment. And the first step is, this is where it all begins. Give in to God. You have to give in to God. Look at those two verses. It says, He, God, gives us grace, potent enough to meet this and every other evil spirit. In other words, God can overcome the prayerlessness. He can overcome the selfishness. He can overcome the worldliness. If we are humble enough to receive it, which means you have to begin by what? Getting brutally honest with God like we've just talked about. Not trying to cover up, but to just get honest. And in that honesty you see your utter and absolute dependence upon God. And a person that realizes his dependence upon God is desperate for God. And a person that's desperate for God is going to do anything to get to God. And the great thing to know is, God's already done everything to get to us. Amen? And He meets the humble with His grace and with His empowerment. God resists 
the proud. But he what? Gives grace. Gives grace to the humble. Be humble then before God. When you were a child, uh, did you ever play the game? Uh, I, I did this as a kid. Uh, and I was a little kid. So I normally didn't come on the winning end of this. But when you were a child, did you ever play a game where you would wrestle someone until one of you was forced to say, uncle? No one wants to say uncle. Why? Because of pride. No one wants to give in. Why? Because of pride. Be honest in answering this. Have you ever been in an argument where you knew you were wrong, but you would not admit it? I'm guilty. Why? Pride. So don't miss what James is saying. The reason we are unwilling to give in to other people is because we've not given in to God. And the reality is you'll never have peace with others until you have peace with God. And peace with God only comes by surrendering to God. There's no other way to know peace with God but in a total, absolute surrender to Him. So are you willing to say to God this morning, Uncle? (sighs) See, before you can pray, listen now, before you can pray, Oh, Lord, would you please change that most vulnerable person in my life? See, before Chris can say, oh, Lord, would you please change Uncle Teddy? You don't mind me picking on you, do you, Chris? She's very exasperated right now. I tease you, so I bug you as well. Yes, I know that. So before... Chris or any one of us can say, Lord, please change that vulnerable person. They're just a thorn in my side. I have to pray what? Lord, change me. You know, we talked about this in an earlier message in uh, this One Another series. That God wants us to receive every person he brings into our life as his what? Gift to us. His gift to teach us to love is Christ's love. And the more difficult the person, the greater the opportunity to plunge into the depths of Jesus' love. The greater the opportunity to learn His patience. To learn not to easily be provoked or irritated. To learn how not to seek my welfare, but the other person's welfare. How to forgive. How to bear all things. Believe in all things, endure all things, to know a love that will never fail. I need to be able to say, Lord, more important, more important than me getting my way is learning your ways. More important than me seeing a change in my circumstances with this person is for you to change my character through this trial and adversity and drawing me closer to you. So the starting point in diffusing any argument before it explodes is giving in to God. Now, as we walk through this, I think we all understand, but let me say it. If I'm in, if we're in a conflict, I can't control you. I can't control your response. I just have to give you to God. But I am responsible for how I respond before God. So, I'm not suggesting that if you walk through these steps, oh, that's going to be cured, all your arguments and conflicts, because it involves more than one person, more than you. The key is that you respond in the right way, that you're learning the lessons that God has for you 
and you're not short-circuiting God's work in your life. So first, give in to God. The second thing you need to do is get wise to Satan. Get wise to Satan. James chapter 4, verse 7, resist the devil. Not only give in to God, but resist the devil, and you'll find he'll run away from you. What a promise. Resist the devil, God says, and he will run away from you. He will run. He will flee. See, what we need to realize is that Satan is the source behind all conflict. He's the ultimate source behind all conflict. In James 3, verse 6, we're told that an argumentative tongue is, quote, quote, set on fire by hell. Satan's body. You know, how, how often, you know, you said, you know, I said something, and she said something, and I said something, and she said something, and then all hell broke out. Yep. And Satan's beyond all that. What a quote that is. An argumentative tongue is, quote, set on fire by hell. And how does the devil operate in the midst of an argument? He plays on your pride, and especially wounded pride. He plants thoughts in your mind, thoughts like, you don't have to take this. Who do they think they are? Show them who's boss. Get even. Assert yourself. I mean, if you don't show them right now who's boss, they're going to run all over you the rest of your life. And when that happens, you need to recognize that is the devil. That's Satan trying to stir up conflict. And you must realize that. Nip it in the bud and resist him. And how do you resist the devil? The Bible is very clear on this. And I've taught this so often from this pulpit. You turn from the devil's thoughts. Knowing those are not God's thoughts, those are the devil's thoughts. You turn from the devil's thoughts to listen to God's thoughts and obey God's thoughts. And God says, if you do, the devil will run away from you. Again, you can't control the other person, but you can, by God's grace, control your response. And I'll give you a great scripture. I'll give you a great scripture to turn to. The next time you begin to argue with someone, this would be a great scripture for you to really uh, memorize, sort of to, to, to meditate on, uh, to, to, to just delve into. And it's from the book of James, uh, from chapter 3, when he's uh, talking about uh, in greater detail the, the, the tongue and the destructive nature of the tongue. Listen to verses 15 through 18. He says, For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Okay, so right there I know if I find myself with thoughts or desires that are really self-centered, where, it's real, where there's jealousy, envy, that's not God. It's the devil. Such things, he says, are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, what is selfish ambition? The desire to promote yourself. To put your welfare above the welfare of others. He says, whenever there is jealousy, there you will find disorder and every evil of every kind. See, that's what's behind all arguments and conflicts. Whether it's marriage, the church family, neighborhood, workplace, it's selfish ambition. We want our way. We don't want to give up. We don't want to compromise. But the wisdom from above, he says, notice how he describes it, is first of all, pure. It's also peace-loving. In other words, this is not going to eliminate arguments, but I want to, if I'm going to enter an argument, I want to have the goal, as far as it's possible with me, may not be able to be achieved, but as far as it's possible, I want the goal to be peace. It's peace-loving. It's gentle. At all times. See, we need to learn to be to disagree without being what disagreeable. It's not only what I say, but what? How I say it. 
And don't miss this next one. It's peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. So give in to God. Get wise to Satan. Look at the thing, third thing. Grow closer to God. Grow closer to God. Look at James chapter 4, verse 8. Come close to God, and He will what? Come close to you. You know, I made an amazing discovery in my life many, many years ago. Uh, and again, not that I've arrived. I've, I've, I've still struggle with this. But this is what I discovered. When developing my relationship with God is my greatest passion and pursuit, whether it's through worship, Bible study, prayer, the better I get along with people. That's been true in my life. And again, it doesn't mean I'm free from all arguments and conflict. I'm just talking about from my perspective and how I relate to the conflict, how I relate to the argument. I find when really my relationship with God is the most important thing in my life, and I'm really investing in that through worship, through Bible study, through prayer, I just find I'm able to handle people better. I'm able to relate better in a godly fashion. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3 reads, He will keep in perfect peace all those who trust Him, whose thoughts turn often to the Lord. See, whenever you turn your attention, your affections, and your allegiance to the Lord, you'll get along with others better. Why? Because God will keep your heart in perfect peace. And as a result, you will not be as irritable with others. Now, folks, this is a key. Let me give you another verse. It's not in your sermon notes. But you need to hear this. And it's very, very convicting. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 through 37. Listen to this. He says, For out of the overflow of the heart, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him, his heart. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. The simple point I want to make is, is there has to be the recognition. There has to be the recognition. I have to be able to admit to God if I have a problem controlling my tongue, if I have a problem controlling my tongue, then there's corruption in my heart. The heart's the problem. And I can't, I can't try to cover that up. I mean, have you ever um, said something that was mean, said something that was hurtful, and then you would say, um, you know, I just don't know what got into me. I, I don't know why I said that. It's totally out of character. I really didn't mean it. No, if you said it, it came from the well of the heart. And that's why getting close to God is the key. It's your relationship with God that is the key. Getting totally honest and transparent before Him. And acknowledging, God, it's obvious I got a problem with my tongue, and I got a problem with my tongue because the problem's in my heart. And so, Lord, it's obvious I need you to clean out this mess in here, and you need to fill it with the Holy Spirit. You need to fill it with your truth, fill it with your word, and I'm dependent upon you. So, give in to God, get wise to Satan, grow closer to God. The fourth thing, go ask forgiveness. Go ask forgiveness. You're never going to diffuse arguments unless you... Learn how and willing to ask forgiveness on your part. James 4, verses 8 and 10. Realize you have sinned and get your hands clean again. Realize you have been disloyal and get your hearts made true once more. 
as you come close to God, notice now, we just talked about being close. As you come close to God, you should be deeply sorry. You should be grieved. You should even be in tears. Your laughter will have to become mourning. Your high spirits will have to become a heartfelt dejection. You will have to feel very small in the sight of God before He will set you on your feet once more. In other words, what's he saying? He's saying, be sorry for your self-centeredness. That's exactly what he's saying. If someone says you've hurt them, you've hurt them. It may not be a big deal to you, but it is for them. Be willing to ask for their forgiveness. I mean, are you willing to go and apologize for the wrong on your part? Now, hear me now. Maybe in this particular situation, maybe the... In this, they're 95% wrong, and, and you're just 5% wrong. Well, then take care of your 5%, and let God take care of the 95%. Amen? Jesus said in Matthew 5, this isn't in your sermon notes, but listen to this, Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24, he says, so... If you're about to offer your gift to God at the altar, if you're about to put your tithe or your offering, your gift in the offering plate, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Not that you have something against them, but there's somebody out there that has something against you, that's struggling with their relationship with you. He says, leave your gift there at the front of the altar. Go at once. Go at once. And make peace with your brother. Again, as far as it's possible with you. And then come back and offer your gift to God. So there's your homework. Give in to God. Get wise to the devil. Draw closer to God. And go ask forgiveness. And then very, very quickly, my time is about gone. I'll just give you the uh, blanks. But uh, when Christians are most like the devil, because I want to, stay on schedule. This series, by the way, will go through the month of July. Uh, it will end the last Sunday in July, and then I'll be moving to a new series. So I want to be able to stay on schedule. Look at uh, James 4, 11 and 12, therefore, in your notes, and I'll do this very, very quickly. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Look at that next paragraph, that next sentence. The words, this is very fascinating. The words slander and devil are the same word in the Greek text. That's how I came up with the title. When Christians are most like the devil. We are most like the devil when we slander one another in the body of Christ, when we attack, when we become critical of one another, complain, murmur about one another, because that's exactly what the devil does. Therefore, Christians are most like the devil when we speak against, there's the blank, when we speak against, here, a fellow believer with the intent to tear them down instead of build them up. Now, again, let me just state this. Because we do love one another, and we've talked about this, the need to encourage one another, to correct. It doesn't mean that we're never critical. It never means that we don't correct. But the key is this. When I do go to that brother, when I do say what I'm going to say, my heart's goal and motive is to build them up, not to tear them down, not to destroy them. If they've made a mistake, if they've wronged, it, it, it's to see them restored in the relationship with God and with others. It's never to, 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 to hurt them, to wound them, to hold them down. So when is it wrong to judge others? And I'm just going to give you the, 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 uh, the points. Number one, it's wrong to judge others uh, to hide my own faults. And we often do that, don't we? I, ex I accuse others of what I excuse myself for. Romans 2.3, judgmental criticism of others is a well-known way of escaping detection in your own crimes and misdemeanors. Number two, it's wrong to judge others on the basis of outward appearance. It's wrong to judge others on the basis of outward appearance. John 7.24, Jesus said, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. We have a way of just judging, you know, measuring people up in a matter of just a couple of minutes and then uh, coming to judgments that are often just totally off base. 
He said, be careful not to do that. Third, it's wrong to judge others before you hear all the facts. We hear a lot about fake news today. Well, that can happen right in the family of God as well. And things that we say about one another. It's wrong to judge others before you hear all the facts. Proverbs 18. What a shame. Yes, how stupid to decide before knowing all the facts. Any story sounds true until someone tells the other side and sets the record straight. Number four, it's wrong to judge others in areas where God has given freedom. Romans 14, 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? We had this message earlier in this series. There are areas where God has given believers the freedom to follow the dictates of their own conscience, where we will, come, where we will arrive at different preferences in areas, like uh, dress or hairstyle or uh, music styles. We could just go on and on. And he's saying where God's given freedom, you have, you're not God. That's not your servant. That's not your place to judge them. If I've given them freedom, then you must give them that freedom as well and not judge them. And number five, it's wrong to judge others by giving or receiving an evil report. Psalm 101.5 says, I will not tolerate people who slander their neighbors. And then notice, this will be very helpful to you. Five questions to ask before receiving a negative report concerning someone. You need to develop the habit. Somebody comes to you, and they begin to be critical of somebody. Or in, And often in Christian circles, it says, would you pray with me about someone that I'm very concerned about? And in, you know, in a sort of a spiritual way, then that just opens the opportunity for them to unload on this person. Well, if that happens, here are the five questions you need to ask before it goes any further. What is the reason you're telling me this? Number two, where did you get your information? Number three, have you personally checked out all the facts? Have you personally checked out all the facts? Number four, have you gone to those directly involved? Have you gone to this person that you're telling me about? Because if you haven't, you don't need to be speaking to me. You need to speak, speak to them first. Remember, what does Matthew 18 says? Go to them what? Even somebody has done something wrong, go to them what? First, what? Privately. Before you bring, bring others. And then, this is a great one, number five. Can I quote you if I check this out? Now, how do I stop judging others? Four things, very, very quickly. Number one, we're talking about all of this in the family of God. Remember we are family. Remember we are family. James 4.11, brothers. Notice that first word, brothers. Don't slander one another. We're in the same family. Number two, remember the royal law of love. Verse 8, if you really... James 2.8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor yourself, you're doing right. And what is the royal law of love? Philippians 2, do nothing, nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, you regard others more important than yourself. You're to regard your wife more important than you, your husband more important than you, or whatever the situation might be. Not looking to your own interests, but to the interest of the other person. And have this attitude, this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Number three, remember who God is, the one true judge. James 4.12, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. That's, and you're not him. And number four, remember, you are a sinner saved by grace. And that last point goes to something we saw in an earlier message too on forgiveness. Since I have been the recipient of God's mercy, who am I to suddenly demand justice from others? The mercy God has shown me, I am to show others. I am to show others. And again, let's be careful. We don't want to get this out of bounds. This doesn't mean there's never going to be a need to correct, to chasten, to discipline. The key to all of this is the motive. The motive needs to be one of love, where I have no intent to destroy this person, but to build them up. My only concern is what is best for them. So this is a message today that has been directed at believers. I'm asking you to take those sermon notes. If you didn't pick up a copy of sermon notes, you can get them out in the vestibule as you leave. Again, you can go to the church website if you need to get all those blanks filled in. You can download that. 
It'll be up in a, a couple days, if not already up. And I'm asking you, use this in your devotions this next week. Find some time where you can get alone with God. And as I just suggested, examine your life. And then really uh, commit to God to follow through on this and, uh, and apply this truth in, in your life and, uh, in order to, to honor God for who He is and what He's done. And, uh, and so how has God spoken to you? Don't, don't run, don't hide. Uh, own up to your error, own up to your mistakes. Know that we have a merciful God, amen? amen? Remember what we saw last week? We have a faithful high priest where we find mercy when we sin and grace in our trials, amen? amen. You don't have to be afraid to be honest with God about how rotten you are or your terrible failures or mistakes. He's not going to gasp and say, oh, I would have never imagined that about you. He knows. And the blood of Jesus Christ has given you the freedom, even in the midst of your sin and failure, to go to Him. Because it's only in His presence that any of this is going to get resolved. It's not going to get resolved trying to run from God, hide from God. It gets resolved by owning up, getting honest, going to God, and knowing God's grace at work in your life. Amen? And then possibly you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope you see by the things you've heard, God's love for His people and His desire for us to know His best through the forgiveness He's granted us in Jesus Christ and the new life in Jesus Christ. As we acknowledge our sin, that we are sinners, invited Jesus in to save us of our sins and take control of our lives. And we would urge you this very day, if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to make your heart His home, invite Him in to forgive you, to take control, and begin this wonderful Christian journey of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, where you find true joy, true satisfaction. So please stand as the invitation is extended. I'll be standing here to greet anyone that has a decision, a public decision of any nature, you want to desire to unite with the church, become a part of the church family, uh, make a profession of faith. Uh, but I trust all of us will be responding to any conviction that God has brought to our hearts. And we'll follow through on this message as we leave today.